1: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Fed Chair Powell saying he still backs a rate hike at their meeting in two weeks, and the markets are shrugging it off, maybe even embracing it. We're going to look at what else Powell told Congress today, why it hasn't derailed the markets. We've also got the latest on how many hikes the market is expecting right now. And we've also got soaring oil prices. The U.S. benchmark topping $112 a barrel earlier today. It means pump prices are about to spike. We're looking at how we got here, why it's not sinking the markets, and how high we could go next. Plus, a look at all the actions U.S. companies from Apple to Nike to Boeing have taken to avoid doing business with Russia. The impact that will have on their business and on Russia. But first, Dom Chu has more on this market rebound. Dom up 628. Yeah, we're picking
2: up a little steam here as we kind of head towards this midday, early afternoon part of the trading session. Kelly, 630 point uh, gain for the Dow. It's about 1.9 percent to the upside. The S&P 500 up a similar percentage amount. That's about 80 points. 4386 the last trade there, and the Nasdaq Composite, the underperformer if you want to call it that today, 13,707 is the last trade up 175 points. That's only about one and a quarter percent advance there. So, again, to put things in context, we're still trying to find some stability there over some of the recent downside volatility that we've seen. And remember, big sell off yesterday, but we've gotten back just about all of it from the Dow Industrials if we were to close here today. The big story here for what's been leading the market, at least on the downside and upside today, are some of the bank stocks. Now, we're going to focus specifically on some of the regional banks here in America, the ones that don't have any real exposure outside of our borders and certainly not in places like Russia and Ukraine at least not notably so. Comerica, Signature Bank of New York, Zions Bank Corp, SVB Financial, the parent company of Silicon Valley Bank, are all up roughly 6% to 8% at this stage. And one of the big ETFs that tracks at the Spider Regional Bank ETF, ticker KRE, up about 5% right now. Remember, interest rates, a part of that story. Ten-year yields at the lows yesterday, about 1.68%. We're back up to about 1.84% right now. So interest rates may be a driver of that trade. And then Ford shares. We are seeing a bid to that particular stock today. And this comes on the heels of headlines earlier this morning. The shares are up by, by the way, 6 percent. This morning, the company says it's going to reorganize itself, reorganize, not split or anything off formally yet. Reorganize itself into two different kind of units, one that focuses on EVs and one that focuses on regular internal combustion engine vehicle cars. That reorganization news, again, no split of the companies yet has sent the stock up 7%. But keep in mind, Kelly, since the highs that we saw back in January, the stock is still down roughly about 30% since those levels are, are there. So watch those EV trades in relation to what's happening with Ford, Kelly, I'll send things back.
1: That's a big story. There's just a lot else going on. Dom, thank you very much. Fed Chair Jay Powell wrapping up his congressional testimony a short while ago, signaling, telling us he supports a 25-point rate hike in March. That's in a couple of weeks' time. He also said most of the Fed thinks the U.S. economy is already at full employment. Steve Leisman is here with all the highlights. Steve?
0: Yeah, hey, Kelly, Fed Chair Jay Powell firmly saying he will propose and support a 25 Basis point rate hike in March weighing in heavily as it does when the Fed chair says something like this on a debate that had taken place among Fed officials in public.
3: I do think it will be appropriate to raise our target range for the federal funds rate at the March meeting in a couple of weeks, and I'm inclined to propose and support a 25 basis point rate hike.
0: That's not Evans. That's not Bullard. That's not uh, Mester. That's Powell, the Fed chair, saying that. He said there was no obvious initial impact in funding markets in the funding markets from the ukraine invasion despite some fears that it could create systemic risk but he said the medium and longer term effects were unknown and it was a reason for the fed to go carefully
3: we do uh, intend to uh, raise interest rates this year as we've said but as long as we're in this very uh sensitive phase of, of events in eastern europe we're going to be um um careful in, in, in doing so we're going to move uh you know, avoid adding uncertainty.
0: Powell called the Ukraine conflict a potential game changer for the Fed and the economy. But in the near term, there is no plans to change the game and the, and the Fed's plans to raise rates at the March meeting, Kelly.
1: And I thought it was significant that he said that basically they all think the U.S. economy is at full employment because we're supposed to kind of get there well into a tightening cycle. This one hasn't even started yet.
0: Right. Um, well, I'm going to, Push back a little bit on that, uh, Kelly, because rates are up quite a bit, you know, 100 basis points or so. um, The Fed hasn't formally raised rates, but in indicating that it would raise rates, uh, it caused the markets to to tighten policy. And policy has tightened. You've had a a decline in the stock market. You've had an increase in rates. So um, the important part about that, I think, is that Powell feels like he has room to maneuver, that he can indeed raise rates without causing a lot of pain. Uh, You have 11 million job openings in this country. Six million is about normal. So he has 5 million job openings he can destroy before he ends up destroying any actual jobs Hmm. in a tightening cycle.
1: Well, that is certainly one way to look at it, Steve. Hopefully that's not the route we're going. But, yeah, their their goal really is to slow things down here. Steve, we appreciate it for now, Steve Leesman. Meanwhile, as you heard Dom say earlier on, yields have reversed higher today. They dropped 20 basis points yesterday, today rising by about the same amount. Let's get out to Rick Santelli. He's got more with the 10-year around, where are we now, 182, Rick?
4: Yes, yes, around 183. And I think what's really fascinating today is is that as you look at the yield curve and you put the day together, uh, equities moving higher, Jay Powell's question and answer, interest rates, everything was kind of feeding off each other, all moving a bit higher with respect to equities, higher with respect to yields, price falling. But maybe the most important thing, Fed fund futures also. Now, let's go to the charts. Here's a two-day of twos. You could see early on that the twos were going to challenge yesterday's high yield at 147, and indeed they did, even though they backed off a bit. But as you go to the 10-year part, yesterday's high yield was 186. We didn't quite get there. So right there you see the yield curve flashing. But what's important here is, the short maturities leading the way with rates higher and stocks up and Jay Powell talking, that's very important. And if you look at Fed Fund futures or the yield curve, you can see here's 10s to 2s. It has dropped down to 33 basis points today, which will be a fresh two-year flat. And we know flat always means that the Fed Funds and the Fed are in play hot, hot, hot. And here's the December Fed Fund futures. Speaks volumes. Today alone, just today, we're 27 basis points lower. So 98.55 versus 98.82 yesterday. 27 base points. We put in a tightening today that we took out of tightening and a half to two tightenings yesterday. What am I getting at here? It's very fluid. And Fed Fund futures last price like a week ago, Thursday for Tesla, you can't trade that price and you can't <laughs> trade an old price in Fed fund futures. They keep changing. And finally, uh, here's a chart of the euro. Uh, the euro currency is going to be at a fresh 21 month low close today, it looks like, which means the dollar will have a 20 plus month fresh High, close, Kelly, back to you. All
1: great points, Rick. So many moving pieces this week, uh, just in the last 48 hours, Rick Santelli. The market may be marking down its expectations of rate hikes after the recent developments with Ukraine, but my next guest says she's sticking with seven, one at every meeting this year. Joining me is Kathy Busjancic. She's the chief US economist at Oxford Economics. Kathy, it's good to have you. What's your counter argument for those who still think there's, the Fed's only gonna be able to raise four or five times this year?
5: Well, thank you, Kelly, happy to be with you. Um, well, I, you know, I think you have to look at the inflation numbers and they're running well um, above expectations, the Fed's expectations. And I think you have to listen to um, Chair Powell today. Uh, he was very unusually explicit in not only indicating he'd favor 25 basis point uh, rate hike in March. And you really got the the sense that maybe he would be inclined to do more. But because of the the outbreak of, of war in, in Ukraine, Ukraine. Um, that he needed to temper that a little bit because of the uncertainty. Sure. But beyond that, you know, he, he said inflation's running too high. Um, the labor market, as you were talking to Steve about, is extremely tight. And demand remains really strong. So even though we have high inflation... Consumers been really resilient. So the Fed's got to resort to tamping down on demand.
1: I think it's really interesting that that jumped out to you the way that it seized a lot of us at the time to hear him say it so explicitly. But also you're reading from that, which is that, you know, this is a Fed official who maybe even wants to do more. Why? What's the urgency? You know, what makes the situation need such a swift and prolonged response?
5: Well, they're, they're um, quite a bit behind the inflation curve at this point. Um, we're going to get um, consumer price data next week, um, and it very well could be, you know, close to eight percent or, or, you know, at eight percent. Um, we're seeing um, the, the commodity market, uh, oil, um, surge higher, and we still have um, core goods prices still with upward pressure because the supply chains are still um, not eradicated. And then you add in the service prices, which, you know, not to leave those out, um, put upward pressure. So they, they want to move quickly. And the more they can move quickly now, the hope would be that they can extend the expansion and um, economic gains and not really have to slam on the brakes and, and kill off the expansion.
1: Right. I, you know, we're hearing more talk about stagflation this week. But do you think we're anywhere close to having a stagnant economy?
5: Not no, not not yet. Um, it, you know, growth is still really strong. I mean, we think uh, economic growth, notwithstanding the higher energy prices, we could still get over three percent growth this year, pretty easily. Um, we're more worried about two thousand twenty-three um, growth slows, but ironically, then inflation should follow suit. So it's a timing issue. So we don't really see a stagflation environment. We see high inflation now, high high growth, and then potentially slower growth and lower inflation in 2023.
1: Yeah. How much lower, though? And, and I'm glad you pointed it out because that we still have this strong demand impulse, that it's not just, hey, because of the Ukraine crisis, at least what we know so far, that we're all of a sudden going to have a negative quarter, a couple negative quarters of GDP. So even though you do see the economy slowing, why won't that bring inflation back down to the Fed's target?
5: It's it's moderating. You know, we had over 5% growth last year. You are slowing, so they are tightening into a a slowing trend, but growth still 3% is well above the potential growth rate in the U.S., which we think is about 1.8. So that all else equal still puts upward pressure, right, on inflation, even though it should ease, still going to remain pretty hot. Um, And our concern is it, it could remain too sticky. So I think it's best for the Fed to move quickly now. But- you know, come 2023, and that's what the yield curve is is sort of indicating. Will the Fed overdo it, and will we see growth much slower? And potential is demand slows, supply comes online, inflation goes below two percent. Ironically, in, in 2023,
1: yeah, that would be quite a reversal from where we are now. I mean, the final question is for those who say, listen, it's always kind of a a, a cause and a cause cost benefit analysis. So why wouldn't the Fed err on the side of caution by taking it easy easy here and going slow?
5: Well, it's a good question. And and I think they they are going to move cautiously, um, but um, especially in in light of the war. Um, But, you know, Chairman Powell, I think rightfully so, opened the possibility that if if inflation continues to run you know, above expectation, um, that 50 basis point rate move at any given meeting is on the table. And I think that's right. You know, they're far be- you know, below um, neutral Fed funds rate, which we think is 2 percent. They're still close to zero at this point. So they have a long ways to go.
1: Still stimulating the economy. In other words, Kathy, great to have you here today. Thanks for your reaction and analysis. We appreciate it.
5: My pleasure. Thank you. Kathy
1: Bustancic joining us from Oxford Economics. Still ahead, oil prices have gone from being negative just two years ago to being back above $100 a barrel today. We'll look at how we got here and how high prices could spike next. Plus, klepto capture. It's a new DOJ task force aimed to crack down on the crimes of Russian oligarchs. Ahead, we'll hear from the Deputy Attorney General on this new unit. And as we head to break, here's a quick look at markets on this big rally day. The Dow up 662 points. The Russell actually the strongest with a two and a half percent gain. We're back in a moment.
0: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
6: What's on the horizon for financial markets?
1: Welcome back to The Exchange. Oil prices have been soaring, especially over the past 24 hours. But even before that, we've seen a rapid turnaround from the negative prices that prevailed in the depth of the pandemic. How did the oil market get such whiplash? And where are we headed next? Pippa Stevens is here with more. Pippa?
7: Hey, Kelly. Well, it's been quite the turnaround U.S. oil topped 112 per barrel today for the first time since 20 to 2011. Less than two years ago, oil was negative. So the question is, how did we get here? All right, so starting in 2020, oil began the year around $60, but started to drift lower as the pandemic took hold, prompting some demand fears. Then in March 2020, a price war broke out between OPEC allies Russia and Saudi Arabia, sending prices tumbling for what was then their second worst day ever. But the bottom was far from in. On April 20th, prices plunged into negative territory for the first time on record in a move that many thought was simply impossible. The contract settled at negative 37.63, and part of that was trading mechanics since the contract was expiring that day, but the move was notable nonetheless. All right, so demand fell off a cliff and in response producers scaled back output, which began the steady rise higher. Then by December, when the FDA authorized emergency use for vaccines, WTI was back around $45. Then we saw prices continue to climb throughout the first half of 2021, with some speed bumps along the way as the the vaccine was rolled out, as we got new indications about demand. And then in the summer of 2021, prices took a hit as the Delta variant took hold, once again prompting demand concerns in what was a very fragile market. That eventually turned a corner, and by October, we were back to $80 on WTI. Then came the Omicron variant, which sent WTI tumbling 13% the day after Thanksgiving as traders feared that there would be a similar impact that we saw with Delta. That proved short-lived. Things turned a corner and prices started climbing as tensions between Russia and Ukraine intensified. Finally, last Thursday, oil surged above $100 as Russia invaded. So that's how we got here. And of course, the next question, Kelly, is where do we go next? Come
1: on over, Pippa. What's the latest that you're hearing people say about that? Because
7: I keep seeing numbers like 120, 150, 200 today. Yeah, exactly. I mean, at this point, it's really anybody's guess. I'm glad I'm not in the forecasting business because we really don't know. Things are changing so quickly. But the consensus seems to be that demand destruction is the only thing that's going to turn this around. So levels on that vary 120, 130, up to 150. So it's really uh, anybody's guess from here.
1: Yeah, well said. Pippa, thank you very much, our Pippa Stevens. So crude above $100 a barrel, you might think would be great for the energy sector. Not necessarily. There are some companies better positioned to benefit than others. But for more, let's bring in Paul Sankey. He's the lead analyst at Sankey Research. And the fundamental point here, Paul, is that these are prices so high, to Pippa's point, at some point, demand destruction sets in. Obviously, that's not a good thing for producers.
8: Yeah, kind of. I mean, I think it's important to remember that the U.S. oil and gas companies have much better strategies now, so you do benefit from high prices for as long as they last. Uh, but ultimately, you're right. People worry that uh, this is going to be very damaging, uh, ultimately for oil demand. Maybe start pricing alternative fuels. Although, having said that, you know we've done a pretty terrible job of developing alternative fuel fuels over the past five years. It's arguably what got us into this situation. Uh, But yeah, basically, that seems to be the concern. People taking profits at what they assume will be uh, a near term peak in prices.
1: And near term peak in prices, it's sort of one or the other, right? If prices peak, you could see the stocks trading heavy. If prices keep going up, maybe they do. I mean, they've still performed pretty well, though. Who would you say is best positioned for the price that we're at?
8: Well, just let me say that I think if the if the Russia-Ukraine situation continues, we're going to lose more physical barrels of oil because of the way the contracts are structured. So we've lost you know three million barrels a day plus of oil almost immediately. That that could keep flowing through into markets and keep pressure to the upside. Uh, if we get a sudden ceasefire, if someone shoots Putin, you know there's a couple of things that could suddenly resolve this situation quite quickly. But then again, you could end up in a quagmire or a Putin victory, at which point we're going to have a long-term uh, desperate lack of oil. In all of those scenarios, I still think uh, the U.S. EMPs are in very good shape. Several of them have excellent strategies regarding cash return to shareholders. They're very capital disciplined. They have good assets, good management, high cash return, 12 13 14% plus uh, return to shareholders every year. Uh, I think that's worth buying, even if people worry about a near-term peak.
1: You think the best position names for the price rise: Devon, Diamondback, Chevron, Exxon. Is that broadly correct? And what about who who yeah. would be, you know, in a way not best positioned, or where might we first start to see some headwinds among the sector?
8: Well, Devon has been confusing people because it's actually not been trading that well, but it, it was such a big performer and such a consensus long that you can see people taking money off the table there. Exxon's facing some relatively minor, but nevertheless issues with its Russia exposure. It's going to have to take probably quite a big right down there at Sakhalin 1. Chevron looks well positioned with a bit of risk in Kazakhstan, which is probably okay. And then most of the Permian, pure Permian plays, Diamondback you mentioned, Pioneer, uh, ConocoPhillips are all very defensive. The guys that typically in oil that you would think would struggle in this kind of environment would be refiners. Because obviously you, you, start, you kite the, the oil prices, their input cost, and people stop driving as much or get defensive about their oil use. And so refining uh, doesn't typically do well in a, in a very elevated geopolitically driven market.
1: Absolutely. And we, and we should point out that OPEC had an opportunity today to try to step up and fill the supply response that you're talking about. And they didn't do it. Um, what do you make of that? And what options do they have to fill the gap from these Russian barrels?
8: Well, as your reporter Pippa pointed out, there were, you know, there were issues with OPEC cutting back, but they didn't push as much oil back into the market as we thought they would. And there was a huge effect, obviously, on demand from COVID. But I think what we're also seeing is there was significant reduction in investment owing to COVID in the upstream. So we, we simply stopped investing in oil and gas production capacity, and that's very much coming home. Uh, the Russians themselves were struggling even to produce to their capacity before this whole disaster so essentially, there's been a major question mark over OPEC's spare capacity. Having said that, I'm a little bit surprised Saudi and UAE, who have spare capacity, haven't done a little bit more to uh, alleviate market fears here. But they may be worried, as I mentioned, that this can get worse before it gets better. Hmm. And they would be better sitting on their hands just to see how this uh, complete disaster uh, plays out. It's very early early days, yeah.
1: It, it's an excellent point, And it may help explain why the administration has reportedly been... Uh, you know, in industry publications today sort of saying to oil and gas producers, yes, you know, increased supply would be a good and a helpful thing right now. Um, I guess finally, I would just leave it with your point, which if I'm correct here, you think we could be in this range for oil that we're seeing, not for a week, not for a month, but possibly a couple of years.
8: Uh, I don't, you know, I think it depends on how long this Ukraine disaster goes. I mean, we've had a ceasefire. You know, there was a headline that there's going to be ceasefire negotiations today. Right. So it could end very quickly. If Putin really wants to take over the whole of Ukraine, I think yeah, it could easily be a mess for a civil war situation for a couple of years, absolutely. And the West clearly is going to keep very severe pressure on him, which would effectively mean you lose all this Russian oil and gas on a pretty sustained basis. You know, so yeah, it's it's very difficult to call. My tendency is to think that it's going very badly for Putin. And as I said, there are two outcomes. One that he sues for ceasefire, or that he gets deposed. Uh, you know, those would be two two short term good outcomes, uh, you know, to get us out of this mess quickly. But unfortunately, there's always the risk that it can just keep going on and on and on. Uh, you see yeah. situations like Libya, for instance, where, you know, it's a, just years of, of of civil war that that never really truly get resolved.
1: Yeah. And that's the uncertainty that we and especially energy investors have to face right now. Paul, it's good to have yeah. you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Kenny. Paul Sankey. Quick programming note, Exxon CEO Darren Woods will be on Squawk on the Street tomorrow to talk about their investor day, the energy market, and their decision to pull out of Russian operations. That's tomorrow around 10.30 a.m. Eastern time. Still ahead, the fallout for emerging markets as oil prices spike. We'll tell you which countries Wall Street thinks will emerge as the winners from this price spike and which ones could lose out big time. Plus, corporate America cracking down in an unprecedented way on Russia. The headlines literally coming in every 30 seconds here on the Newswire as the war on Ukraine escalates. We'll look at what the fallout could be for these companies and for the Russian people. And as we head to break, Caterpillar leading the Dow today with every component in the green. We're back in a moment.
6: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof-of-delivery, Packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.
7: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories.
9: breaking news out of Washington on the Ukraine crisis. Kayla Tausche with the story. Kayla. Kelly, we're just getting news from the Departments of State and Commerce that the U.S. government is extending export controls to Belarus in addition to Russia. Of course, Russia has been using Belarus, which borders Ukraine, uh, as a A port or a uh, place of location for a lot of the troops that they've been using uh, to invade Ukraine. But now the Biden administration is saying that similar sanctions to what it's already done for Russia, limiting the exporting from Russia of technological goods, uh, defense capabilities, as well as oil refining capabilities to Belarus will also be blocked. Of course, this was the same action that was taken just about a week ago on Russia. But now because of Belarus's role in this conflict, The administration is extending these sanctions to them as well. Kelly.
1: Kayla, but are they extending on Russia the sanctions that relate to um, technology in particular?
9: Well, those had already been uh, announced uh, at least a week ago, Kelly. That was part of uh, the sanctions package that President Biden announced when he made his speech uh, just several days ago in the uh, essentially the second wave of sanctions ratcheting up on Russia last week before the invasion, before SWIFT took place, before some of the other more stringent things took place. So certainly that's already been in the works from the Commerce Department. But what's new is the expansion to Belarus as well.
1: Also, is it new, Kayla, that they're imposing full blocking sanctions
9: on Russian defense entities? That was expected, but we're getting a little bit finer detail on exactly what that will look like. But that was expected as well. The U.S. has been trying to find a way essentially to kneecap Russia's defense capabilities uh, as it tries to regroup and uh, and increase the fighting around Ukraine. Uh, So certainly that is that is notable, but perhaps not uh, not entirely new. Kayla, thank you so much.
1: Our Kayla Tausche with the very latest out of Washington. Let's look at the impact across markets today. The Dow's still up 647 points, about 40 points off the highs. Every sector's in the green. We're talking about 2% gains for the Dow for the S&P. Financials, energy, industrials leading the way. You can see the financials up 2.8% on a big rebound in those yields today. And a big rebound in companies with revenue exposure to Russia and Ukraine. Software firm EPAM leading the S&P today. It's still up 17%, though down 40% in the past week after pulling its guidance on on the invasion it's one of the top tech employers in ukraine philip morris pepsi mondely city also moving higher today, remember about 10% of Philip Morris's revenue comes from the region. Its shares are down 6% over the past week. And a tale of two retailers want to mention today, both moving on quarterly results. Nordstrom up 40% for its best day since November 2020 after beating estimates. Tells you how volatile that stock is. It also gave bullish guidance, called out improvements in its off-price business Nordstrom Rack. Flip side, Abercrombie & Fitch, ANF, down 14%. Worst day since May 2019 after missing estimates. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel.
10: Hi, Kelly. And here's what's happening at this hour. The United Nations General Assembly voting overwhelmingly to demand Russia stop its attacks in Ukraine and withdraw all troops. The vote was 141 to 5 with 35 abstentions. The vote was held at the first emergency meeting of the General Assembly since 1997. Russia's defense ministry says that 498 Russian troops have been killed in Ukraine and that reports of higher losses are, quote, misinformation. US officials urging skepticism about those Russian figures, many estimates of Russian deaths are actually in the thousands, and Ukrainian President Zelensky says nearly 6,000 Russian troops have been killed. Ukrainian officials says that the Russian advance on Kharkiv has been stopped, but shelling and rocket attacks continue. A university building and a regional police department were engulfed in flames after an apparent Russian strike. Ukrainian officials say that Russian attacks have killed 21 people and injured at least 112 over the last day. And on the news tonight, surging numbers of refugees leaving Ukraine, including thousands of citizens from other countries. A look at the humanitarian challenges tonight at 7 Eastern.
1: Kelly? All right, Rahel, thank you very much. My next guest says if you are looking to put money to work in this market right now, look for companies with great balance sheets that sell products that are needed. This stock belongs to that group. We have the name next. Welcome back, everybody. As the Dow continues to move to session highs, up 700 points spurred by positive uh, sounding talks out of Russia and Ukraine this morning. Also, strong AMD uh, ADP report and Chair Powell's comments about supporting a rate hike. All of that seems to be uh, buoying market sentiment. And my next guest says if investors are looking for stocks right now, think about a company like AMD, Good Businesses. Great balance sheets. They sell products that are needed. AMD shares, by the way, down about 20% so far this year. Joining me now is Kim Forrest. She's the chief investment officer of Boca Capital Partners. Kim, it's good to see you. And uh, so these are names that you're already, I mean, you own them, but you think people can absolutely feel comfortable buying here?
11: I think so, especially, you know, noting that they've been, uh, well, especially all the semiconductors have been beat up this year. And AMD really has gotten beaten up this year, uh, down 20%. But we think if you hold it for three to five years, you're going to be richly rewarded. Um, I've been on your show before talking about how much I love tech, and I love productive tech, right? Not games and Facebook and that kind of stuff, but things that businesses are going to use to gain productivity. And AMD's products fit in that area very well.
1: This market has been giving you lots of opportunities to buy stocks that have been down, so you know, tell me again what characteristics you're looking for. It's not just tech. We know uh, obviously your interest in that sector, but you even like names like 3M and PNC here.
11: I know it sounds kind of crazy, but here's the unifying um, features of anything that's in our portfolio. First, they have to have adequate management. And by that, I mean management that says something, does something, and it's in the interest of shareholders. It just is that simple. A balance sheet that can support growth because in these tough times, you might find an acquisition or you want to invest in your business and you have to have the financial wherewithal to do that. And then finally, and probably most importantly, a product line that people really want. And I don't care if those people are businesses or if they're regular consumers. But I think that these are things that make for a good, investment that lets you sleep at night, because you know that this company is going to grow over time, regardless of the craziness that's happening in the world.
1: Yeah. And that craziness could continue for some time, you know. So what do you tell clients or at what point does that change your investing strategy if it does at
0: all?
11: It doesn't really, because, you know, even in, uh, let's say, 2020, at the beginning of 2020, we were still using this method to try to find good stocks that are going to reward their owners. And I think it's timeless. Um, I guess that our style is growth at a reasonable price. We're always looking for companies that are poised to grow. And all of the names that you mentioned, especially AMD, we feel are poised to grow in the next three to five years just because of those things that we say. Good uh, product sets, good management, great balance sheets, that's that's about it.
1: Is there anything you'd warn investors off of, I, you know, whether it's kind of the the rush into energy right now or, you know, wh- anything that you sort of look at and think that's n- that maybe not where I'd be, where I'd be going?
11: Sure. I think anything that's making headlines today is probably too late, right, um, that it is moved, kind of like energy. Um, could energy go to 200? I heard a guest earlier saying it could go, you know, anywhere. That might be true, but it might also go back. We don't know. So um, I do that. And don't ever fall in love with technology. Never, 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 never. (laughs) That's probably my biggest thing. Just because it's cool doesn't mean it's going to sell,
1: says the woman who loves technology stocks, but from from a different perspective. Kim, thanks so much. It's great to see you today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Kim Forrest with Boca Capital Partners. Coming up, freeze and seize. That's the goal of the task force klepto capture, a new Justice Department effort to enforce U.S. sanctions against Russian oligarchs. We'll hear from the deputy attorney general about this effort next. Welcome back. The Justice Department setting up a new task force to enforce sanctions against Russia with Deputy AG Lisa Monaco warning oligarchs that the U.S. will use, quote, every tool to freeze and seize your criminal proceeds. Eamon Javers spoke with Monaco and joins us now with more. Eamon.
12: Kelly, that's right. I just sat down over at the Department of Justice with the official who is leading this new operation, which GOJ is calling Task Force Klepto Capture. So I asked Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco if the U.S. government knows the total dollar value of assets that are held by Russian oligarchs inside the United States. She says that's what they're going to find out.
9: The sanctions allow us to freeze the assets. And if we can trace them to criminal proceeds, to money laundering, to sanctions evasion, we can go and seize those assets so Putin's cronies can't profit from them.
12: And given that so much of the information that the DOJ will need here is in private sector hands, I asked her what law enforcement needs from real estate professionals, lawyers, accountants in the United States who might know some of the information that DOJ is looking for. She said she wants the private sector to be on the lookout.
9: The message to financial institutions is be on alert, Uh, get your anti-money laundering and sanctions compliance programs in order. Make sure they are functioning on all cylinders uh, because if you fail to do so, the consequences can be severe.
12: Kelly, it sounds like we're going to see some significant asset seizures soon as a result of all of this. And Lisa Monaco told me that what happens to those assets once they're in government hands could vary on a case-by-case basis, with some being held, some being sold off, and some being returned to their rightful owners. Kelly?
1: Are there already assets in motion in advance or, or as this is coming down?
12: She was a little cagey about that. I mean, one of the things I asked about was cryptocurrency, right? Because uh, there is this fear that uh, Russian oligarchs could transfer assets into crypto, move the, them around a little bit more quickly across borders. She said they are concerned about that also, uh, but they're working on that. And she said their recent cases, including the arrest of that crypto couple up in New York City two weeks ago, uh, re- should remind everybody that the DOJ and law enforcement does have the ability to track assets over the crypto blockchain, uh, even though. A lot lot of people who hold those assets might think that they're invisible to law enforcement.
1: Right. That's the blockchain. Eamon, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Our Eamon Jabbers reporting. Still ahead from Apple to the automakers, companies are punishing Russia for their invasion of Ukraine. The impact that could have on Russia's economy and its people next. Welcome back, everybody. The scope of corporate and cultural backlash against Russia's invasion of Ukraine is almost unprecedented, certainly in modern times. Just take a look at some of the action we've seen since last Thursday when Russia first invaded. Major automakers suspending production in Russia or halting shipments of cars and motorcycles and parts. Visa and MasterCard preventing Russian financial institutions from accessing their networks. Twitter and Meta blocking certain content. And Apple stopping sales in Russia and curbing some of its services media firms also taking a stance netflix refusing to add russian channels to its service and variety reported just last hour it's also halted all future projects and acquisitions from the country youtube and roku restricting some content and the major movie studios suspending new releases there so how significant are all of these corporate moves and what will their lasting impact be howard chats is here with some thoughts he's senior economist at the rand corporation a research firm and global policy advisor Howard, it's great to have you here today. And have you ever seen anything like this?
3: No. The uh, the speed and the scope of these sanctions and of the corporate reaction is unprecedented, especially considering the size of the Russian economy. It's about number 12 or 13 in the world. We've never really seen anything like this.
1: One point, which you know, I'm not sure is, is your bailiwick per se, that, that people seem to be discussing is to what extent do you want to harm the Russian people For the actions that the leadership is taking and in the removal of something like Netflix, maybe, you know, it's not such of an issue, something like consumer staples, you know, essential products, obviously things would get a little bit more serious. What's your response to that?
3: That's very important, actually. We took a look a few years ago about the consequences of increasing sanctions on Russia and determined that most of the problems would fall on regular Russians on small and medium enterprises. Now, all of the Russian economy will be affected, but, but certainly everyday Russians who will depend on imports that are now more expensive because of the exchange rate depreciation or businesses that rely on imported inputs are just going to have a harder life right now. And in some ways, that's unavoidable. When you sanction, when you do these broad sanctions, you're going to hit the entire economy.
1: Practically speaking, with a currency that's nearly worthless and a more and more difficult ability to get access to products or have the funds for them, what's the practical impact on the ground going to be? Where will the Russians turn to for, you know, bartering or for Products. Will they be coming more from, you know, some of those marginal countries that are able still to send their supplies into Russia? What what's that going to look like?
3: Right. So the currency has has slightly rebounded. There was a big panic when these uh, when these sanctions went on. It's somewhat rebounded, although it has depreciated a great deal. Um, Russia is a very big agricultural producer, a very good big agricultural exporter. So food is is not really going to be an issue, at least basic food. Um, the the consequences will generally be that the the ability of people to consume imported items will decline. Uh, there's not going to be barter. The central bank is is very well run, and uh, upon the announcement of the cut of the sanctions against the central bank and the swift move, central bank swung into action very quickly by increasing liquidity to Russian banks. And by putting in a number of other emergency measures, such as regulatory forbearance, encouraging banks to continue to make loans. So the central bank and the Russian regulators are doing everything they can to keep business going, not completely normally, but at least to keep things from collapsing. So I think what we're really going to see is a steady deterioration, not a shock, but things are going to be more expensive. Mm -hmm. Business is going to slow down. And bit by bit, things will get worse and worse.
1: Are U.S. companies shooting themselves in the foot at all by removing their leverage over Russia or their exposure to the country if this conflict were to drag on?
3: Yeah, you need to get really inside the head of the Russian leadership for that. In other words, will there be revenge against these companies for taking these actions? From a company's perspective, there are two very good reasons to do what they're doing. One is reputational risk. Right now, the world has turned... Uh, with great disfavor on anybody seeming to interact with with the Russian economy. The second is financial or business risk. Will they be able to get their profits uh, or their capital out when they need it? One of the things the central bank did was block external transfers of capital. So, you know, at at some point, uh, we don't know soon or, or many years from now, this will move to a different status Companies will be interested in doing business again. And my guess is that they will be welcomed back, at least selectively, into the Russian economy because the Russian people like to consume Western-oriented products just right. like everybody else in the world.
1: How important, what this is in some ways, is a test of American soft power. How important is that? You know, how, how big of a bargaining point or a bargaining chip do you think it is uh, when we're trying to avoid an all-out military response to what Russia's doing here?
3: Yeah, I think this move is huge because it illustrates not just American soft power, it illustrates the strength of the Western Alliance. The Western Alliance, democracies in general, have been portrayed as, as weak or, or indecisive, but clearly there was a lot of planning for this. You don't just drop sanctions packages instantly, there's a lot of planning that goes into that. And you saw The vast coordination, the United States, Canada, the EU, France, Germany, Great Britain, Japan, even Switzerland, right, is unprecedented. So when we think about, you know, the size of economies or the power of economies, yes, it's true China is number two, U.S. is number one. But when you put the collective alliance together, it's got enormous power in the world. And I think that's what this really illustrates.
1: Well, it was so interesting, Howard, to have you on today. Thank you for your thoughts. We appreciate it.
3: You're welcome. Glad to be here.
1: Howard Schatz with the Rand Corporation. Still ahead, the invasion of Ukraine has oil and gas prices surging, which is good news for some emerging markets. Bad news for others. We'll dig into that divergence next. And take a quick look at the Hack ETF, which is higher by about 12 percent this week. Its biggest holdings today largely moving to the upside. Remember, you can catch the show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. While you're there, check out Conversations with Kelly, where I have extended chats with key players on topics of interest. You You can find it wherever you get your podcast. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Oil spiking about 18, now 19 percent over the past week. It's creating a divide in emerging markets. Let's get out to Seema Modi for a look at the winners and the losers from it.
13: Seema. Kelly, the surging price of oil is a big win for the energy producing nations like Brazil, Argentina, South Africa, Mexico, all seeing their respective stock markets outperform so far in 2022 but it is bad news for the emerging market nations that import oil so we're talking India South Africa China stocks in these markets you can see trading down in the year on the year just to quantify though how much it costs every time the price of oil jumps 10 bucks a barrel Japan and South Korea pay an additional $25 million per day. That's about $90 billion a year. India, the world's second largest oil importer, pays an additional $140 billion a year. For Turkey, it's over $2.2 billion, a country already getting hit hard by inflation. So if oil prices continue to rise, strategists say central banks will be really under pressure to keep their currency strong. That's hard to do given the rally we've seen in the U.S. dollar recently, Kelly, One option, of course, for these central banks is to raise rates, though, that can also weigh on growth. So the way they approach this problem will be um, highly complicated. And, of course, it really comes down to how, where these currencies are trading, and what the growth data looks like in, in coming days, coming months.
1: And also we see that China has to pay up big from these, ri- it's another way in which they have to deal with in some way the fallout from this crisis.
13: Yeah, and that brings up a longer term question too. Unlike some of these emerging market nations, China is an importer and exporter of energy. They're in a better situation versus India and Turkey. They, consume, they import all of their oil, right? So they're really dependent and sensitive therefore to how high prices go from here.
1: As we know SEMA. It's not just oil. We've seen it for a number of commodities as well. Would the same sort of dilemma apply, right, for central banks for the currencies that you're talking about, for any of these commodities where they have to start paying these higher prices? Yeah,
13: that's exactly right. I mean, if you look at nickel, palladium, um, again, India, a lot of these South Eastern nations. Import these key raw materials that are used for their automotive sector. So once again, they're put in a vulnerable situation. This is very different than eight weeks ago where strategists were coming out in the beginning of the year, Kelly, saying these are the markets you want to invest in. It just goes to show how the commodity picture can change that outlook very quickly.
1: Absolutely. No, the emerging markets was one of the big calls, and some are benefiting from this, but for right. others, it's definitely been a slog. Seema, thank you so much. We appreciate it very much, our Seema Modi. And with the price of oil way off the highs of the session, but still way up. Markets are way up too, everybody. That does it for The Exchange today. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show.
6: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.